Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Robert Pindyke, Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Professor Pindyke has written a compelling forthcoming book about climate change called Climate Future, and we're going to get to that in our second segment. But we're going to begin with the news from the Supreme Court. Someone leaked the draft decision of the court that was written in February and was circulating among the justices that showed at the time five justices in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade and Casey completely. And this has thrown the country into a certain amount of turmoil. And there is a lot of talk, first of all, about the motive for the leaker. It's considered quite a, an egregious breach of etiquette and norms of the court where the confidentiality of these drafts is considered sacrosanct. And so there's been some speculation about who, you know, QE Bono, why would somebody leak this? Damon, I'm going to start with you on the topic of the leak itself. At first, a lot of people thought that it was probably one of the clerks for a liberal justice who who leaked it, and then others said, no, no, the motive runs the other way. Do you want to speculate on that, or do you think it's not important in the grand scheme of things? Well, I'm happy to speculate, as long as we're, we're all honest enough in realizing that when we have inadequate and actually no information, you know, conspiracies are likely to spread. We really don't know who did this, and it is entirely possible to play through various scenarios. Maybe it was uh, one of uh, Sotomayor's clerks who did it in order to alert the country to this uh, tyrannical act that's about to happen, or maybe it was uh, one of the conservative clerks or maybe even one of the conservative justices who wanted to keep one of those five justices who were ready to overturn Roe as of February, try to keep them on board because they're wavering. Well, can I interrupt for one sec on that note? Yeah. So when these drafts circulate, it is not at all unusual for justices to first sign on and then change their minds after they've seen a draft opinion. And so the thinking here would be, or the speculation anyway, would be that since Justice Roberts was not one of the five, that he might be trying to peel away one of them for a narrower ruling. And that if this leaked, it would lock in the five who were already on the list. Right. And it's certainly possible. I mean, yes, I mean, famously, Justice Roberts himself appears to have flipped in the Obamacare case back in 2012. Exactly. If you read the decision, it reads like it's in favor of getting rid of the Obamacare mandate. And then in the last two paragraphs, it flips and ends up defending it and redefining it as a tax. So that seems to be a case where Roberts was on one side throughout several months of deliberation. And then that 
at a very late moment, switched things and kind of kept most of what he had already written. It is certainly possible that things could switch, but the problem, again, is that we just don't know. So there are many scenarios and many motives that could be in play, but without more information, it really is kind of idle speculation. I do think it matters that the leak happened because, as you noted at the top, there are norms of decorum and norms of silence around these things that allow the court to do its business. It is important that if, say, back uh, right after oral arguments in the Dobbs case, they do an initial vote and see that five of the members appear ready to overturn Roe, then it gets assigned to Alito, Justice Alito. He writes up what his majority lead opinion would be on that case, and it circulates. And it even if nobody flips, the other justices on the the side of overturning could respond and say, look, I'm, I'm going to jump off of this if you sound so strident in these paragraphs on page 50 here. You've got to rein that in. So then he reins it in. Exactly. Or, or the opposite could happen. They could say, you know, you're not really emphasizing how this will implicate the consequences for the Obergefell decision or the Lawrence v. Texas decision. And so you got to strengthen that part. So there are any number of ways in which this can evolve, and it can only happen in good faith if everyone in the court agrees to undergo this deliberative process without worrying about being embarrassed, about it blowing up in people's faces, and then political pressure intervening. So even though I'm definitely not someone who's naive enough to say, oh, the Supreme Court is above politics, that's too crude to put it that way. It is also true that of the branches of government, it is and has been the least political and for very good reasons. And so anything that pulls us Back from that toward more politicization is not a positive development, and the leak is a sign that that very thing is happening. So it's not a good thing. Right. Linda, speaking of politics, the traditional understanding of the political valence of abortion was that pro-life voters were much more likely to vote on this question than pro-choice voters. After Roe v. Wade and Casey, the Basically, the pro-choice people, either they became complacent or they just assumed that this was a settled issue and that they didn't have to vote on this, whereas pro-life people were very keen to support uh, politicians who they said would appoint justices who would overturn Roe. It's not clear that that is still the case now. Will this energize Democratic voters in the 22 midterms and beyond? Well, it goes back to the old adage, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. And in this case, uh, the pro-life movement has been pushing for this ever since the original decision was handed down in 1973. And I will say that as a matter of law, I don't think that Justice Alito is wrong. I think that the original decision uh, and the subsequent decision in Casey did not have sound legal reasoning. But we've had this decision around now for 50 years almost. And that then means that we've had a whole generation of young women growing up in an era when abortion was available. And they have thought of this as their constitutional right. And now they're suddenly being told, no, 
that's not necessarily the case. There is no constitutional right to abortion. This is something that can be uh, legislated in the 50 different states, and we may have a variety of laws. That, frankly, used to be my position on the issue of abortion, that because it was such a deeply divisive issue, an issue that touched on the most sacredly held moral values, that it was not something where one size fits all would necessarily work in a country that is as diverse as ours. And I think if this decision had been handed down 10 years ago, six years ago even, before the Trump era, before the kind of MAGA political movement taking over state legislatures, it would not have been quite the earthquake that it is now. The problem is that you now have a number of red states that have taken very radical positions on abortion that uh, do not recognize the right of a woman who has been raped, even if that person who raped her was her father or her brother or her uncle, to decide not to carry the pregnancy to term. And so you've got a number of states where there are almost no exceptions except something that threatens the very life of the mother. And I think that has made this a much more potent issue and is going to energize the Democratic base. And suddenly, when it's time to go to the polls, I think a lot of not just Democrats, but suburban Republicans, maybe even some Trump voters are going to say, gee, I'm not so sure I want what I've come to consider a right taken away from me. And so I think it is going to energize the Democratic base. And I think it might even have implications for the 2022 election. I don't think it's necessarily going to override issues like the economy in every case, but this is such a personal issue. This is an issue in which so many women may feel they have a state. Abortion is down in America. It's been in a downward trend. I think only a slightly uh, more abortions today than there were in 1973. When the Actually, there are fewer. Fewer. Okay, so there were fewer than there were in 1973. But the fact is that one out of every four women, even now, will have had an abortion at some point during her childbearing years. That's a whole lot of potential voters. That's a whole lot of people who made a decision and may not like the fact that that option in their state will not be available. Uh, Bill Galston, the most pro-choice voting constituency, though, is actually young men, not young women. Women tend to be fairly evenly divided on the question, which you wouldn't necessarily guess from most coverage. So is there, in your judgment, a danger, though? You know, both parties have been able to indulge their extremists on this issue as long as Roe was the law of the land. They paid no price by catering to their extremes. Uh, Linda mentioned some of the extreme laws that Republican legislatures have passed. And she might also have mentioned that one law would even potentially make it a crime to have an abortion in the case of an ectopic pregnancy. But then again, the Democrats too have suggested, you know, Elizabeth Warren, for example, doesn't think there should ever be any limits on abortion right through the whole nine months of pregnancy. And the polling on this is pretty clear. 
that most Americans favor abortion being available in the first trimester, but then it flips. And in the second, and especially in the third trimester, you get up to like 80% opposed to abortion in the in the latter months of pregnancy. So is there a risk of Democrats overreaching here too? In the broad sweep of debate about this issue, certainly yes. If you're asking me what the focus is going to be between now and November, I think it's going to be on the court decision itself and not on democratic alternatives to it. And in that respect, I agree with Linda's political judgment, although it's not uncontested among political pundits, and that is that it will be easier for Democrats to mobilize around loss and defeat than it will be for Republicans to mobilize around victory. So I do think in the short term, this is a problem for Republican candidates and Republican strategists. In the longer term, let's say the 2024 election, everything depends on how the issue is posed. And if Biden is the nominee, he will be faced with exactly the same question that's faced him since the beginning of his presidency. Will he identify with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which, as you correctly point out, will countenance few of any limitations, or will he try to position himself as a champion of the broad middle of the American people on this issue as well as others? If he makes the right political choice, I think that uh, he will seize the high ground versus Trump on this question. If he doesn't, then I think there are going to be a lot of disgusted people in the middle of the spectrum. Okay. Professor Pendyke, you are an economist and an expert, as we know, on climate, but uh, give us your views of what this tells us about where we are as a democracy. Sure. It looks very sad. It's a, it's a very sad situation in terms of the U.S. as a democracy. Look, we have three very conservative justices who were appointed by Trump. One, because Mitch McConnell refused to even consider when Obama had a choice to appoint somebody. So we have these three people that were appointed by a president who uh, did not even get a majority of, of the votes. And we have a court that I'm assuming the decision is going to be to overturn Roe when it finally comes out. And that's a view that a minority of the United States public supports, uh, assuming we're talking about at least the first trimester. So this is an example. It's not just that the court is politicized. It's extremely politicized. And to even think that it's neutral and that it looks at the law and the Constitution you know, it's it just absurd. What's happened is we have a set of people that were appointed politically and they're exercising their political views. So it's just a very, very sad situation. I don't know what it'll do for, you know, will energize Democrats, energize Republicans. I think what matters here is simply what does this do to democracy in the United States, which is already under serious assault. Okay, thank you. Damon, you wanted to make another point, and then I have a question for you. Uh, sure, yeah. I just wanted to get on the beg to differ record as saying that <laughs> I really am worried that Democrats are screwing this up quite badly already. 
And for reasons that Linda noted in passage, as well as, as Bill, while coming down on, I think, a little bit of the other side. So far, we had back in February, when people were not really paying attention to this, uh, 48 Democrats in the Senate voted to advance a bill called the Women's Health Protection Act that would uh, legalize abortion procedures through the entire nine months of pregnancy. That is now going to be voted on again next week because Chuck Schumer is bringing it to the floor again, which will get all of those Senate Democrats on the record holding that position, which is, I think, far to the left of the mainstream of American public opinion. You have Tim Ryan, who's going to be running, obviously, for the Senate from Ohio against far-right J.D. Vance, who won his primary this week as well. Tim Ryan said he supports abortion through all nine months with no restrictions. And then this afternoon, I see Beto O'Rourke, who's running for Texas governor, statewide office in Texas, comes out and says he also is in favor of no restrictions through nine months. This is not the center of public opinion. It is the mirror opposite of Republicans who want to ban abortion from conception. And I do agree that when this decision comes down, presuming it stays what it appears to be in the leak and Roe is overturned, uh, that will be the focus of conversation for a while, a week or two. But then people will realize, oh, Really, if I'm in a blue state, nothing's changed. This is about what happens in these other states, these red states, and that pushes the debate down to the more local level, which means this is going to be talked about in every House race, every Senate race where abortion is even on the table at all. And I really worry that the Democrats are staking out positions that are not going to help them on this. Now, whether it will sink them, I don't know. But like the thought that this is actually going to be a net benefit for November, I just don't see it, at least based on what people are saying right now. Just to underline the point you're making, I have printed out some data from Gallup. And the most recent is 2018. Um, but these data go way back. They go back decades and they have not changed very much. So this is questioning voters on abortion should be legal, should be illegal or no opinion. And then so they ask in the first three months of pregnancy should be legal 60% first three months of pregnancy. In the second three months of pregnancy should be legal 28%. Okay. In the last three months of pregnancy should be legal 13%. Okay. 81% say should be illegal in the last three months of pregnancy. So that is stark. And, and by the way, there was another more recent poll from just one year ago that echoed that. That was, that was an, an AP poll. So It's quite consistent. And then again, I would urge people to dig into some of these polling questions because it may surprise people to learn that while most Americans do favor having abortion available in the first trimester. There is also broad support for things like parental consent, a 24-hour waiting period, information about the risks of the procedure, notification of the husbands of married women who are planning to abort, showing a patient an ultrasound image of the child. I have seen this referred to by people in the Democratic Party as some sort of 
horrific outrage. And yet 50% favorite versus uh, 46% opposed. And uh, you wouldn't guess that from the way it's described. So people's views are very much in the mushy middle. And there is a danger for Democrats in overreading this. Well, now, by the way, Mitch McConnell, too, is being cautious here. He has urged his caucus to talk about the leak, but not talk about the substance. And so, Damon, I'm going to come back to you on this. You know, the reason McConnell said that, presumably, is because he thinks that they don't have much to gain by stressing the substance here, that they only can lose voters. Do you get the sense that unlike in 1973 or in any number of races, even back in the 90s, that the parties have really self-segregated on this question so that this uh, decision, as momentous as it is, or may be if, if it stands in its current form, won't actually move that much politically? Well, clearly the parties on this and many other issues have sort of separated out ideologically speaking. So there is more purity where the the overwhelming majority of Democrats are pro-choice and becoming more so all the time. And more Republicans are pro-life. I don't think it's been quite as drastic of a shift on the Republican side. But I also think, you know, McConnell's position is very cagey, as he always tends to be. I mean, the reality is for the last 49 years, it, it wasn't an issue right away, but definitely by the early days of the Reagan administration, the status quo for Republicans have been, this decision was wrong and we're opposed to it. And yet it was still the law of the land. So there was all kinds of potential political gain to be had by sort of bashing the decision, coming out very strongly as being pro-life, and yet nothing was actually changing. So it was a great motivation of the base, getting evangelical voters who feel very strongly about it, conservative Catholics, get them motivated. Now, if this really is going to be overturned, that changes this dynamic for the first time in nearly half a century. So there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, about, wait, what is this going to mean for Republicans actually, combined with the fact that there's still like roughly 30% of Republicans are pretty pro-choice. And so there is the potential in these cases where we've seen in Texas, in Oklahoma, in some other states, Missouri, that have passed really draconian trigger laws that would go into effect once the decision comes down, banning abortion pretty strictly, that does have the potential to backlash against the Republicans. Hence, McConnell, I think, in political terms, pretty shrewdly saying, basically, you know, this is on the Supreme Court. If people are going to get mad, let them be mad at the Supreme Court. Those people have lifetime appointments. My people in the Senate don't have lifetime appointments. Better that the court take the heat than my people. So I think that's mainly his motive there. Right. Bill Galston, I know you have another point to make, and we will come to that right after this. I wish this bag under my eye would just go away. If that sounds like you every morning, you are not alone. Bags and puffiness under the eyes are a problem for millions of American men and women. Until now. Introducing the new GenuCell Serum with plant stem cell technology from Chamonix. Susan from New Jersey wrote, I've been using GenuCell for a couple of months. The puffiness around my eyes is gone. 
Even the crow's feet and small lines have disappeared and haven't come back. I love your product. I use it under my eyes, around my cheekbones, and on my eyelids. Not only Susan, folks, I use it and I love it. And with its instant effects, you'll see results in the first 12 hours, guaranteed or your money back. During the Genucel Mother's Day sale, save up to 50% on all Genucel products at genucel.com now. Go to genucel.com slash beg to differ. Order today and Chamonix will include a surprise luxury gift absolutely free. Genucel.com slash beg to differ. One more time, that's genucel.com slash beg to differ. Okay, Bill Galston. I just want to underscore a point that Damon made. The Pew Research Center has asked questions about abortion for a very long time now. And in 2007, 39% of Republicans said that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Now, that's, that's a sort of a left-leaning formulation. And you still got 39% of Republicans to agree to it. So now go forward 14 years to 2021. And that number is still 35% in favor of a formulation that's to the left of the mushy middle. So this issue potentially is quite divisive inside the Republican Party. And if you're talking about moderate Republican women who are pro-choice, and there are a lot of them, I persist in my view that at least for November of 2022, you know, the language of the Democratic bill, which will not pass, to the contrary, notwithstanding, that this is a way of potentially mobilizing not only Democrats, but moderate Republicans who don't feel as though their voices have been heard very much inside their own party in quite some time. Uh, to say nothing of independent voters who we haven't mentioned, and they are the largest cohort. So I would just say, based on a completely unscientific sampling of the mail that I've been getting since Monday, that the the passions are running quite high on this. And it's one thing to say, as Terry McAuliffe attempted to do back in 2021 when he was running for governor, you know, you don't want to vote for somebody who's against Roe v. Wade when it was very abstract and nothing had happened. It's a totally different world when the court has actually ruled. And I, I'm not making a prediction necessarily, but I do think it's possible that now that it's real, that a number of people who were content to go along will be smoked out and will say, you know what, this is a bridge too far. We will see. Uh, we also don't know for certain that that this is a final ruling of the court, of course. All right. And after this message, we will turn to Professor Pendyke's excellent new book. Are you one of the millions of people who mostly invest in stocks? Because JP Morgan predicts returns for a stock-heavy portfolio. Hungary. And so with that, we will come to our second topic in just a minute. Are you one of the millions of people who mostly invest in stocks? Because JP Morgan predicts returns for stock-heavy portfolios will be under 5% for the next decade. JP Morgan City and Morgan Stanley all agree there's one asset in particular you should be looking at, contemporary art. Why art? 
because they know that contemporary arts returns have outpaced the S&P 500 for the last 25 years by a whopping 164%. Now that you know that secret, I can tell you about Masterworks. They let you add contemporary art to your portfolio at a price customized to you with no hassle. If you want to skip their wait list, go to masterworks.io and use promo code beg to differ. That's masterworks.io promo code beg to differ. Before deciding to invest, carefully review important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. All right, we are back. Professor Robert Pindyke uh, has written a book, as I mentioned, called Climate Future, which I really enjoyed. I think it was a very necessary book because unlike many of the things that you see about climate, it takes a realistic and careful approach without hysterics. And I say that because, you know, I think, Professor Pendike, you're quite concerned and worried about the so-called fat tail possibilities of extreme climate consequences. But I want to begin by asking you to set the stage a little bit because there is so much hysteria about this. And I think misplaced, and I'd be curious to see if you agree. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez warned that the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. That's a direct quote. And she is not alone. There was a 2021 international survey, questioned thousands of young people around the world, and it found that 56% of those questioned believe that humanity is doomed. So before we get into the substance of your book, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Do you agree that that's overwrought or no? Yeah, it's extremely overwrought. Humanity is not doomed, at least not because of climate change. There are other things that might doom humanity, such as nuclear war, Mm -hmm. uh, but not climate change. That doesn't mean that climate change is not a problem. It doesn't mean that climate change isn't something we need to worry about and do something about but it is kind of an hysterical view and there's no basis for it. There's no foundation for it. Uh, This idea that humanity is going to come to an end, there's just simply nothing to support that. Right. So the IPCC doesn't say that, right? I mean, the consensus is not that we're doomed, right? (laughs) It's, It's not simply the consensus. I mean, you know, even the IPCC recognizes that, and I'm, I stress this quite a bit in the book, there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know even how much carbon dioxide emissions we're going to see over the coming 30 or 40 years. We don't know what that will do to temperature. We don't know what that will do to sea levels. We could have a pretty bad outcome. And uh, we could have some very high costs to society, both in the United States and around the world. That's different from humanity coming to an end. That's just a totally different thing. So there's a lot we don't know, a lot of uncertainty. What matters is the possibility of an extreme outcome, what I call in the book a catastrophic outcome. But an extreme or catastrophic outcome does not put an end to humanity. An extreme outcome means that world GDP could fall 30% or 40%, which is really extreme, but not an end to humanity. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit, if you would, about the uncertainties. And also, can you explain to our listeners 
why you focus on adaptation. You, you gave a very good explanation in the book for why, even in the unlikely event that we were to get a world agreement to reduce emissions to zero by 2060, and even if everybody were to abide by it, which is dubious, that would not be sufficient. Temperatures would continue to rise. You want to explain that? Sure. So you have to remember that we've already increased the CO2 carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere quite a bit. It's gone way up. And there's a lag between the increase in the CO2 concentration and the impact on temperature. So even if today, or I guess we have to wait till tomorrow morning, <laughs> we cut all, all CO2 emissions to zero immediately, all right, immediately to zero, there will still be continued warming simply because of the increase in the CO2 concentration from past emissions. CO2 stays in the atmosphere for 100, 200, 300 years. It doesn't go away quickly. So the problem is that we've already put lots of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's already going to continue to cause warming. Uh, even if we cut emissions to zero, we're not going to cut emissions to zero. I doubt that we're even going to make many of the objectives that have been set forth, net zero by 2040, net zero by 2050, whatever. I don't think that's going to happen either. But whatever happens, it's just likely that we're going to see an increase in temperature well above the two degrees Celsius limit that many people cite as if we go above that, we're going to have terrible problems. I think it's likely we're going to go above that despite our best efforts. Right. And I want to hear more about why you think we're not going to meet those targets after this message. If you're like me, you share your home, not just with humans, but with animal friends. And while they're wonderful companions, they also have odors, dander, hair. Let me talk to you about Eden Pure Thunderstorm Air Purifiers. Their proven oxy technology quickly destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again, and it freshens up your home. It gets rid of any odor, like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, even dirty diapers and cooking smells. With over 200,000 thunderstorms sold, you know it works. You never have to breathe dirty air again. And there are no filters to buy. And it takes up no floor space. You just plug this unit into the wall. It's almost silent, so it's great for use in any room, really. You can use it in your bedroom. We do. And we also have one in the room where the cat's litter box is. Plus, all the units come with a six-foot USB cord. They are compact, great for traveling. You can use it in hotel rooms or wherever you might be going. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, enter the discount code MONA3 to save $200. That's three thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200. Shipping is free. Okay, so... One of the other reasons you cited in the book is not just that we already have put so many greenhouse gases into the environment, those gases are going to continue to warm the atmosphere, but you also point out that Europe and the United States have begun bringing down their emissions, but a lot of the developing world 
has not, right? And they're unlikely to. Right, exactly. So the US, the UK, Europe, they are making progress. We are reducing emissions. Um, I don't think we're going to get to net zero by 2040 or 2050, but we are reducing emissions. But when you look at the rest of the world, including big countries like China, India, most of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Bangladesh, these countries are not reducing emissions. Their CO2 emissions are rising, continuing to rise, and any reasonable projection, at least for the next five or 10 years, is that they're going to continue to rise. They're not going to come down to zero by 2050. They're not going to get close to that. So it's sad, but the, the fact is that it's unlikely that we're going to see much of the world reducing emissions to the point that we'd even come close to the two degrees Celsius limit that people have talked about. Remember, temperatures already increase by more than one degree Celsius. So when we say two degrees, what we really mean is another one degree. Right. And by that, we mean 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right. Yeah. One degree Celsius is 1.8 Fahrenheit. So I've been reading your book. Uh, I finished it, but I, I've been reading it over the last few months, and it's really affected the way I watch the news or consume information because every single time I see a reference to climate, it is always and exclusively, pretty much and exclusively about we have to reduce emissions, we have to reduce emissions. There's never any discussion of other things we could be doing. And that's what I loved about your book. So tell us you know, your ideal approach to this problem. It isn't just about reducing emissions, right? Although you do stress that, but it's more than that. Yeah. Right. So reducing emissions is important, but it's not enough. It's just not going to do the job. And, you know, we shouldn't give up on that. We should continue to try to reduce emissions. But we have to consider what would happen if temperatures do rise well above two degrees. What do we do about that? And the answer is what I call adaptation. How do you adapt to more CO2 in the atmosphere? And there are a variety of ways that we can adapt. We can adapt to rising sea levels. We don't know how much sea levels will increase, but to the extent they do, we can adapt to that by building seawalls. The Netherlands is underwater, below sea levels, not underwater, it's below sea level. And the sea is kept out by the dikes. So there's a lot we can do to adapt by preventing inundation of water. There's something called solar geoengineering, which a lot of environmentalists hate. They even hate the word. Uh, but it's something we have to invest in. And the idea is actually quite simple and very inexpensive. You pump sulfur into the atmosphere, sulfur dioxide, actually, and you pump it in from airplanes that fly to high altitude. And what that does is it creates an aerosol that reflects sunlight. So you're not going to eliminate the CO2 in the atmosphere, but what you're going to do is counteract the greenhouse effect of that CO2. There won't be as much warming. So what we could do, for example, by putting sulfur in the atmosphere, what we could do is take what would have been a three degree Celsius increase in temperature and hold it down to two degrees or even one and a half degrees. And that's something we have to invest in and look into. We can't simply say, oh, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We don't want to do anything that would affect the environment in any way whatsoever. You know, we're simply going to have to invest in adaptation, and we're not doing enough of that right now. Okay. I'm going to turn to the other members of the panel, and I will start with Bill Galston. Well, first of all, 
having browsed through the book, I can see that in its own quiet way, it's going to be a must read for a lot of people who've been pontificating on this subject. And it's a real call to rationality and sanity. On a personal note, when I was a university professor, uh, one of my colleagues was Thomas Schelling, the late Thomas Schelling, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in game theory and its application to the real world. And you know, I recall reading a series of articles written by Schelling about the comparison between the adaptation strategy and the reduce or at least mitigate the rise of CO2 strategy. And there were many instances in which the adaptation strategy simply made more sense. And so I think the broad thrust of Professor Pendyke's book is plausible and necessary. The devil is in the details, of course. Given the way the political winds are blowing in Florida, I've changed my mind about sea level rise and the importance of mitigating it. I can see new political advantages to sea level rise. <laughs> just, just joking, my faithful audience. But, uh, you know, but as someone who vacations regularly in Cape Cod, the disadvantages of sea level rise are all too apparent. I'd sort of like the beaches and the cliffs to stay there. Uh, we are talking, as I'm sure Professor Pindyke knows, about a very, very extensive series of steps. In one of his chapters, he talks about a seawall around much of Manhattan. That would be a Manhattan project on steroids when you look <laughs> at the fiscal implications. And I wonder whether we're up for it as a society. I wonder how the choice, at least at the margins, between CO2 reduction and active adaptation strategies will come out when the cost of adaptation strategies becomes apparent. And if there's time sometime in this broadcast, I'd like to hear Professor Pindyke drill down a little bit into the cost-benefit calculations of these two strategies when they descend from levels of categorical abstraction to actual projects and processes that would be necessary. I understand that some of them are not too expensive, like seeding the clouds in various ways, but, but for coastal America, we are talking about investing a fortune to prevent what otherwise is pretty certain to happen. Let me just respond to that. First of all, some good news is that uh, in terms of inundation, Florida would be much worse shape than Cape Cod. Don't worry about Cape Cod. Uh, so you're, you're, you, can, you, can, oh, yeah, you can feel good yeah. about that. But look, Florida is a good example. This is not expensive. Let me tell you an example of something that can be done. What we do right now in the United States is we subsidize developers who build houses on the beach so that they can get washed away by hurricanes because we subsidize their insurance. So the federal insurance program right now basically says, look, you know, you want to build houses, homes for rich people to have a vacation home on the beach in Florida. You're worried about hurricanes and the hurricanes will get worse indeed if, if climate change turns out to be serious. And uh, as those hurricanes get worse, it means that many of those homes are going to get washed away. Well, you need to have insurance, but insurance is expensive. So what we do now is we subsidize it. We say, don't worry about that. The government will pay for most of the insurance. 
Well, that's crazy. We're basically spending money to help people buy homes, build homes on the beach that are going to get washed away and we're going to have to pay for. And we do it because the developers have political influence and the homeowners have political influence. That's why we do it. So it's not simply cheap to get rid of those subsidies. We make money by getting rid of those subsidies if we have the political will. Excellent. And by the way, there doesn't seem to have been any lack of ambition about spending for things like the Green New Deal, and you're suggesting spending money in different ways, as I understand it. Okay, Damon Linker. Yeah, I mean, my expertise is not really in, well, any area of policy, if I'm going to be honest, but uh, (laughs) I definitely learned from this book, and I appreciated the scientific side of it that I'm not in any way an expert on. But the, the part that really engaged me and that came closest to speaking to what I spend most of my time thinking and writing about were the implications of it for political messaging. I mean, as you could glean, I guess, from my comments about abortion earlier, I'm someone who is always advocating for the center, if not in an ideological sense, then at least in the sense of where the voters are, where is public opinion. And one thing that frustrates me to no end about climate change arguments and environmental arguments more generally is the tendency, like in so many other areas of our politics, for the people on the side that want to do something, think that the way to do it is to scream and jump up and down and to exaggerate and use hyperbole and thinking that if they don't do that, they won't be heard. No one will take them seriously. But of course, the flip side of that, the problem that goes with it is that what you end up doing is sort of sounding like a little bit of a lunatic, saying things that end up being contradicted by what actually happens. And then people go back and say, look, you predicted this would happen and it never happened. So you're hysterical. Why am I going to ever listen to you again? And so you get easily dismissed and mocked and so forth. And so it actually doesn't work. So I actually found very fruitful the idea. I mean, your very basic distinction from the very beginning of the book that it ends up framing everything that comes later between between averting and adapting that all of the hyperbolic rhetoric I'm talking about is about averting. We need to cut emissions so we can avert the disaster. If we don't avert it, the earth will come to an end or become an uninhabitable for human beings, as AOC predicted and Moda noted at the top of this segment. But you advocate right from the beginning, no, actually, like we probably aren't going to avert a bunch of bad stuff from happening. And so what we need to do is adapt. Now, Are people going to jump up and down and scream and get scared and frantically vote for climate policies that you appreciate and I advocate for if they think, oh, well, but we don't have to avert a catastrophe. We can't avert it. We must merely adapt. It sounds much more reasonable. I mean, my guess, if I can turn this into a question rather than just an observation, it would be as an observer of this from your position. Do you think that there is hope to kind of move the conversation in the direction we need to move it by trying to actually not scream and yell and be alarmist, but instead to say, look, this is going to happen or it's very likely to happen. 
and we need to adapt to it. And that's a reasonable thing to do. Just as, you know, if you discover that there's a sinkhole on your property, you may change, you know, your decision about whether to build uh, an expansion on your house in the direction of that weak area. You kind of make a rational calculation about, well, if we don't make these changes, the, the cost benefit analysis leads us to believe that we'll actually end up paying even more in cleaning up the mess if we don't try to adapt. Do you think that there's any hope for, for persuading people with that more reasonable approach? Yeah, I do. And look, clearly it's easier to persuade people by shocking them and frightening them and telling them that the world is going to come to an end because most people don't like to get into details and hear about science and hear about possibilities. People also want to be told exactly what's going to happen. They don't like the idea that there's uncertainty and we can't tell them exactly what's going to happen. We just are unable to. But I think that gradually we are going to be moving towards adaptation. We already are. You know, uh, new technologies are coming aboard that let us, for example, protect homes from flooding, the use of sump pumps, French drains, and so on. The seawall around Manhattan was a result of Hurricane Sandy. And already close to a billion dollars has been spent on engineering the plans for that seawall. Whether it will be built is unclear. Probably will cost about $8 billion, even $10 billion to build the seawall. But it would be effective in protecting southern Manhattan. And so when you think about the cost of what happened with, with Hurricane Sandy, and if that happens again and happens regularly, compare that to the cost of 8 or $10 billion for the seawall. Um, I think we may well go ahead and say, no, it's worth it. we got to build the seawall. So I think there will be some progress. Linda Chavez. Well, I have to tell you, when you sent out a note that we were going to be discussing this climate change book, I sort of groaned to myself. I didn't complain, but I thought, oh, gosh, you know, first of all, I know what I don't know, and I don't know enough to know who's right uh, on the climate debate. But what my experience has been is that advocates on both sides of the debate take such extreme views. I mean, you've got Al Gore, you know, with his An Inconvenient Truth movie of a number of years ago. Then you've got uh, folks who sometimes write in uh, conservative journals who basically say everything is fine and we can keep doing exactly what we're doing and nothing bad is going to happen. And what I know is that I don't know which of them is right. Well, when I opened this book, I found three absolutely brilliant words that uh, Professor Pindyke used over and over again, which is, we don't know. <laughs> and suddenly this idea that, you know, people who write about climate are nothing but, you know, filled with hubris. I, I was just very pleased at the tone of uh, Professor Pindyke's work. And I learned a great deal in perusing the pages. But the most important lesson was that we have no way of knowing the future. I mean, all of us would be, you know, incredibly rich and successful if we had a way to predict anything about the future, much less, you know, what the weather is going to be tomorrow, much less what it's going to be 50 years from now. So I thought the book was a real antidote to that kind of certainty that so many people in this debate project. And I thought this idea of adaptation, this is what human beings are good at. 
We are good at adapting. We are good at adapting to change and coming up with new technology, new ways of doing things that allow us to overcome things that we cannot entirely control. Now, I don't think this means that the conservatives have won and we can just you know, go about driving our gas-guzzling cars and polluting the air and that uh, you know, the Koch brothers or somebody else is going to come down the pike and, and invent a way of dealing with all that pollution. I, I don't think that's right. But I do think that being more reasonable, talking about interim steps, including, as I was very pleased to see, the professor's nod to nuclear power was terribly important because I think uh, we do know that burning coal kills a lot more people than nuclear accidents ever have in the in the history that we've had nuclear power plants. So I, I found the book refreshing. I loved the tone of it. I loved the fact that he was not a Mr. Know-it-all who was able to predict everything that was going to happen over the next thousand years. I, let me just add, <laughs> it's nice to hear that. And by the way, you know, that's right. I stress in the book, there are a lot of things we don't know. And I take flack from a lot of environmentalists who don't like that. They say, oh, when you talk about the uncertainties and the things we don't know, you know, you're helping the other side. You're, you're saying we shouldn't do anything. And quite the contrary. Uh, I never say in the book that we shouldn't do anything. In fact, what I stress in the book is that our lack of knowledge, the fact that we may be lucky, we may be very unlucky, means that we have to think about climate policy as an insurance policy. We don't want to have the bad outcome, and we want to prepare for that possibility. So the fact that we don't know things doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything, um, and that's an important point. Could I just add that I loved your talk about insurance policies and the impact that allowing people who actually decide to build houses on the beach actually pay for the risk they're taking. And I like that very much. But my only experience with having to buy flood insurance was after a 500-year flood hit Boulder, Colorado, and smack in the middle of a landlocked area, I had to buy flood <laughs> insurance. So uh, less less enthusiastic about that because uh, they are raising the rates a bit. And, and that seemed to me like pretty extreme to have to buy flood insurance in Boulder, Colorado. So, Professor Pindyke, I want to uh, stress that you mentioned a number of different adaptations. You talk about investing in R&D on a number of fronts. So, of course, on batteries, on carbon capture technology, on solar geoengineering, which you've already mentioned, on developing heat-resistant crops, which could be key if the agricultural system is, is severely disrupted. But I hope you don't mind if I ask you to dilate a little more on my favorite topic, which is nuclear power, because people keep talking about the need to divert away from fossil fuels, and I'm all for it. And then they go straight to renewables, and they don't stop and say, oh, yes, and nuclear is a great bridge technology to get us there because it doesn't emit any greenhouse gases and it works whether the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, et cetera. So if you don't mind indulging me, talk a little bit about nuclear power. <laughs> sure. You know, if we want to decarbonize the electricity sector, if we want to produce electricity without burning fossil fuels, which, by the way, is the only way that it makes sense to have electric cars. I mean, if you have electric cars and you charge them with electricity that's generated by coal or oil or gas, it's not helping. So the only right. way to decarbonize the electric sector is 
probably going to involve nuclear power. There's nothing wrong with wind. Wind and solar are wonderful, but the wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. It's not going to be enough. It's not going to do the job. And the fact is that if you look at the history of nuclear power, if you look at the technology, it is very safe. And, you know, people don't understand risk. Many people, if you ask them, if you're going to go from, let's say, from Boston to Washington, D.C., what's safer, driving or taking an airplane? A lot of people will say driving because they can't imagine an accident and they worry, what if the plane blows up or something, you know, the, some problem with the airplane? The fact is that driving is far more risky than flying in an airplane. But we don't understand, people don't understand the nature of the risks. And I show in the book, there's a table that shows the number of deaths that occur, for example, with coal, mining coal, using coal, burning coal, and it's hundreds of times greater than the deaths that have occurred in any way, in any possible way from nuclear power. Nuclear power is basically safe, far safer than fossil fuels, especially coal. And if we want to have a decarbonized electric sector, we're simply going to have to use it and kind of understand what the risks are, which are very small, and try to reduce those risks even more. But we need nuclear power. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for writing this book. It's a breath of fresh air. And thank you so much for joining us. We will return with our highlights and lowlights of the week after this brief message. It is spring, and that means outdoor grilling. But you know what? You don't even have to grill outdoors. We have these Omaha steaks, the, actually the small fillets in our freezer. I defrosted them, and I made them on our cast iron skillet. And I have to tell you, they were melt-in-your-mouth tender. They were so wonderful. And yes, it's great to grill outside, but when it's pouring, it's good to know you can still have your Omaha steaks even inside on your stovetop. Let Omaha Steaks make it easy to stock up on all your favorites. Visit omahasteaks.com, enter beg to differ into the search bar, and order the spring grill pack today. You'll save over 50%. Plus, you'll get four Omaha Steak burgers and four boneless chicken breasts free with your order. This package has it all. From the butcher cut filet mignon to the delicious caramel apple tartlets, Omaha Steaks delivers perfection in every single bite, every single time, and they back each order with their 100% satisfaction guarantee. Visit omahasteaks.com, type keyword beg to differ in the search bar, and order today. There is a reason why Omaha Steaks have been the leader of gourmet steaks and food for over a century. No one, I mean no one, comes close to matching the flavor, tenderness, and value of Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com, keyword, beg to differ, and order the spring grill pack today. All right, it is time for our highlights and lowlights. Bill Galston. Mine is going to be a lowlight, I'm afraid. And it is J.D. Vance's victory in the Ohio Republican Senate primary. It's a low light for the obvious reason, namely that uh, it vindicates some of Donald Trump's claims, exaggerated in my view about his, his political prowess and strength. 
but also because it continues a tendency that deeply troubles me towards the election of people who know how to talk, but not how to do. They know how to agitate, but not how to legislate. We now have an electoral system that selects for qualities that are related to the political dimension of office, but not to the governing dimension of office. And we are going to get more and more of what we're selecting for. And I fear that our capacity to legislate sensibly will continue to decline as a result. Yes, thank you. And of course, Ohio is a, what, plus nine Republican state now? Yeah, so he, he is. He will probably be the next senator from the state of Ohio. Yeah, that's depressing. Tim Ryan is a good man. I say that with regret, but uh, he's going to have an uphill battle. Yep, especially in a tough year. All right, Linda Chavez. Well, I've got a highlight for the week, and my highlight is very personal. I was uh, able to attend this week the Freedom House Annual Awards and their 80th anniversary party. The awards were being given two awards, one to Carl Gershman, a very old friend of mine, former president, founding president of the National Endowment for Democracy. But the second award was given to the Movimiento San Isidro, uh, which is a Cuban civil society group. And in the course of listening to the acceptance, uh, the two people who founded that group, Michael Castillo-Perez and Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara, they were not there. They are in prison in Havana. But the speech that was given was given by someone who accepted the award for them, Anameli Ramos. And she talked about something that, frankly, even though I concentrate a lot on immigration issues, I don't think I had been quite aware of. And that is the huge number of Cuban migrants who are coming to the United States, not as we used to see them in rickety boats crossing by water and, and ending up on our shores in Florida, but now getting in airplanes and flying first to Nicaragua and then making it on land to Mexico and showing up at our borders. We expect to have about 150,000 Cubans who will seek asylum here in the United States this year. And some of that has to do with the change on Nicaragua, trying to take a page out of the playbook of the Mariel boat lift, decided that they would allow Cubans to fly to Managua or to, into Nicaragua without getting a visa, knowing that they would use that as an escape route in order to come north and, and uh, do so in ways that burdened the United States because it was not the normal way of travel. There's an excellent article in the New York Times that talks about this Cuban migration, and it was called Cuban Migrants Arrived to U.S. in Record Numbers on foot, not boat. And I assume you'll put a link to that uh, in the play notes. Okay, thank you. Damon Linker. Well, today I want to highlight two very good Twitter accounts. I do this periodically because I spend a lot of time on Twitter and a lot of it is nonsense, but I also learn a lot of things. And this week I saw two Twitter threads that were very valuable. The first was by a Russian kind of tech information security guy named uh, Dmitry Alperovich. And he is a co-founder of the organization called CrowdStrike, which 
got some attention during Trump's administration because this was a company that was used to investigate the DNC server leak and the influence of Russian intelligence on breaking into it and trying to influence our election here. This led the kind of Trumpist right to demonize this company, but it did good work in that investigation. And Alperovich had a really a series of very interesting and quite accurate Twitter threads in the winter predicting the Russian war in Ukraine with incredible accuracy. He was more accurate than plenty of people with lots of inside information in our government were. Now, the Biden administration did a good, pretty good job of predicting things, but the details with which Alperovich analyzed this was quite extraordinary, and I was impressed. And I've been following him since. And this week, he had a very interesting thread in which he predicted against uh, what a lot of people have been saying, that Russia is not going to escalate on May 9th, Victory Day in Russia, in Ukraine, that actually they are more likely to slowly back down a bit and call victories what are clearly not victories. But if that, you know, gets them to give up, uh, maybe we should let them call taking partial control of some areas of the Donbass and having a very narrow land corridor to Crimea from Russia. And, you know, he, he says he doesn't have, this is Alperovich here, he said he doesn't have great confidence in this prediction as much as he did about his predictions about the war starting, but he has very interesting informed things to say about why he thinks that's the more likely course than a greater escalation on Putin's part. So those of you who are interested in following the war, I recommend his Twitter account very strongly. Second one is a little less complicated to explain. A guy named Ryan Berg, spelled B-U-R-G-E, is a political scientist who studies American elections elections and public opinion and their intersection with religion. He does a lot of empirical work with public opinion polling. And this week he had a number of threads in which he posted lots and lots of data about American opinions about abortion. So some of what I said earlier in the podcast along those lines came from polling data that he tweeted out. And so if you're interested in that topic or other issues in some way related to religion and politics, I recommend his Twitter account as well. Thank you very much. Okay, Professor Pindyke. Sure. So, of course, I'm an economist. And for me, the highlight or low light, as the case may be, is very recent. It's just a few hours ago. If you look at what's happening with the stock market, the Dow has been down about 1,100 points, the S&P and down around 4%, the NASDAQ around 5%. It's a very sharp drop. And this follows the Fed announcement that the federal funds rate was going to be increased by half a percent, which is a large increase. But what's more important is that more increases are going to be coming. This is not the end of it. We are going to be seeing higher interest rates because inflation has turned out to be much higher than many of us, including myself, had anticipated six months ago or a year ago. And it's a variety of reasons for the high inflation. Part of it is because of what's happening abroad with energy, with oil prices, with uh, supply chains. Part of it is because of all the spending that's been occurring here in the United States, uh, government spending. But whatever those causes, we are now seeing serious inflation. The Fed is going to act on that. And what's happening with the stock market right now is essentially a picture saying, look, we don't know what's going to happen with GDP, but there's a good chance 
that high interest rates are going to work by pushing us into a recession. And so this wonderful low unemployment may not be permanent. We may have to get ready for a decline in housing, a decline in housing prices, a decline in new investment, and perhaps a decline in GDP growth, which is already happening. So that's the highlight or low light, as the case may be, that I would emphasize right now. But is it a good thing that the Fed is doing this necessary work of raising interest rates? I mean, arguably, they waited too long, right? Yes, I think they waited too long. I think we were all taken by surprise how badly inflation has increased. It's, again, it's a perfect storm. It's a confluence of factors that have pushed inflation up. So yes, I think they waited too long, but I think they're doing the right thing. I don't think they have much choice. I don't think we want to let the inflation rate just keep increasing. So I think this is what the Fed has to do. Okay. Well, at least it gives some sense that somebody is in charge, which is <laughs> very important. All right. Thank you for that. I would like to cite as my highlight a piece by Yasha Monk in Persuasion. Uh, and Yasha, by the way, will be joining us as a guest in the coming month. His piece is titled, America Won't Ever Be Majority Minority. And this is a topic that's come up several times on this podcast. I know Linda's mentioned it, maybe others. There is this view that's held both by the right and the left that the United States was heading into territory where white Americans were going to be in the minority and people of color, so-called people of color, were going to constitute the majority. So there are a few reasons why this is not true, and Yasha goes through it. It's about how people identify which is not necessarily the way you would expect. And some of it is an artifact of the way the Census Bureau categorizes people, which has changed. But furthermore, it's very destructive because on the one hand, you know, the racists and xenophobes on the right get frightened and think they're about to be replaced. And people on the left think that they don't have to make compromises with white conservatives because they're about to become irrelevant. And both of those things are wrong. But there's a lot in this to give hope, too. And the fact is, we are becoming less and less ethnically divided. And one of the statistics that Monk references is that in 1980, fewer than one in 30 newborns in the United States had a mother and father from different ethnic groups. In the past decades, this has radically changed. The number of people who oppose interracial marriage is now minuscule, and by the late 2010s, one out of every seven children born in the United States was mixed race. So that's the reality on the ground. And anyway, highly recommend this piece by Yacha Monk, America Won't Ever Be Majority Minority. With that, I would like to thank Professor Pindyke for joining us. I would like to thank our listeners. Our producer is Katie Cooper. Our sound engineer today is Jonathan Siri. We thank all of you for listening, and we will return next week as every week.